We want an easy bake oven religion. We don't want to consider that issues around sex are complex. We want easy answers. And so we just want the recipe that as long as we follow it, then out pops the desired outcome. Welcome to Holy Heretics from the Sophia Society. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Allen. And as promised, today we are diving deeper into the unholy trinity that we believe American Christianity has begun worshiping. We gave an overview of this trinity in episode two, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, I would definitely pause this episode and listen to that one first so that you know what we're talking about. In this episode, we're looking at the first of the three Ps. We're looking at purity, and it is a crazy world. This involves what is now called purity culture, and it's the Icus dating goodbye culture, the true love waits culture, the passport to purity culture, the culture that is so obsessed with keeping everyone sexually pure that it causes us all to become sex obsessed in one way or another. And when I say that purity is a crazy world. I mean it. I posted on social media a couple weeks back asking people for their stories, both good and bad, of how purity culture affected them. And I got so many responses, including people who were pretty upset that I would even possibly think about critiquing purity culture. We will talk more about these responses in part two. But before we do talk about anything, there are a few things I want to clarify really quickly so we start off on the right foot. First, this will not be an episode on what the Bible does or does not say about sex. Looking into what it does say about sex is a fascinating topic once you delve into it, and I will link to some resources on it in the show notes, and hopefully we'll get a chance to interview some people about the idea of a, quote, biblical sexual ethic in future episodes, but for now, our topic is the idea of purity and where it came from, and how it's been distorted through the centuries, and what it has come to mean to us today. And that means we'll also be looking at purity culture and its effects, and all of it is highly tied to sex, but talking about them does not require us to figure out what a biblical sexual ethic is or isn't. So the point is not the particular sexual ethic, but rather the system and the methods the church used to enforce their prescribed sexual ethic, and whether or not that system had the intended effects and was good, or whether it was something else entirely. Second, I do want to say from the outset that we did a ton of research for this episode, not just by getting people's stories, but by reading books and listening to podcast episodes and reading articles. And it is just very clear that we will not be able to cover everything or say all there is to say. It's just such a complicated subject. So I will link to a bunch of resources in the show notes for you to delve in as deeply as you want to. And of course, feel free to reach out to us with any questions, but just know that this is not supposed to be the ultimate deep dive into purity and purity culture. And finally, just a quick mention of the fact that we will be talking about sex and sexuality and topics that can be triggering. So we're not trying to be explicit, but this is a warning that there are mature topics and to listen at your own discretion. Okay, I think that covers everything. So let's jump in. Gary Allen, we mentioned in our introduction of the three Ps that the idea of, quote, purity is much broader than just about our sexuality. So let's start there. What is purity and where does that idea come from? 
I think it's safe to say that the pursuit of purity exists in some shape or form in just about every religion or cultural framework. And in many cases, purity is directly associated with honor, especially in the Middle East or, or the East, where there is this whole honor-shame culture that underpins all of society. Now, we don't necessarily see that as much in the West, but it is particularly manifested in purity systems. So from a meta perspective, purity involves anything and everything from ritual washings or baptisms to dietary restrictions, ways of worshiping, and of course, sexual activity. What's fascinating, I think, for this conversation today is just how directly linked our bodies are to the whole notion of being pure or being impure. The body, in many cases, is a source of shame, um, and it, which is really a sad way of looking at this flesh that, that we live in. And I think most distorted expressions of religion really have a special disdain for the body. And it, some of that comes back, at least in the West, to this Greco-Roman distinction between body and soul, where the soul is seen to be good and the body is you know, automatically evil. And within that, then impurity is seen as a form of contagion that can go from body to body, especially in, in sexual contexts. As Christians, of course, our spiritual and cultural inheritance is directly tied to a purity religion, to Judaism, to this Abrahamic tradition. And really similar to Islam, ancient Judaism descended into a religion of, of purity. And so these concepts go all the way back to the establishment of Israel as a people and their ardent understanding of Yahweh or God as being holy or set apart from them and being very distinct from them. In Leviticus, we read the command from God, be holy for I am holy. And there are entire chapters in Scripture really dedicated to purity rituals, you know, scattered throughout the text. And so the Israelites had such a high reverence for God that they really dared not attempt to draw near to him uh, flippantly. And so they created careful preparations and qualifications to perform in order to be in right relationship with God. So in a way, you can see how purity systems began with really great intentions. Uh, but over time, they descended into legalism, into dogma and control. And especially by the time of Jesus, Judaism was a religion of insiders and outsiders, of, of holy and profane. It was very binary. You were pure or impure. You were sacred or secular. And at some point in that historical conditioning process, the notion of being holy became synonymous with outward purity. And this system is so ingrained in the culture, it really became kind of a cultural map whereby everyone in the first century knew their place in the world based on where they lived in this kind of made-up purity map. And I think we've inherited that. We've inherited this, this very complex purity web from the ancient world that's based on birth, it's based on gender, it's based on physical wholeness, sex, and of course, based on, on race. So think about it really kind of in terms of concentric circles, where there is this center circle where the most pure people live. And for the Jews, those pure people were priests and Levites based on their lifestyle and daily rituals. And then from there, you begin to work your way out a little bit to just normal Israelites. And then from there to converts. And then the outer fringes 
of this purity system are Gentiles who are impure no matter what they do. And then there's a second tier within that, which is tied directly to gender. Men are uh, just seen as more naturally pure in most of these patriarchal cultures. And women are specifically at risk for impurity based on natural bodily processes like childbirth or menstruation. So, for instance, women couldn't even go to the temple or synagogue for 33 days after they gave birth to a boy. And it's kind of funny that they couldn't go to the synagogue or temple uh, for 66 days after giving birth to a girl. So you can even see within that system, girls are seen as more impure than boys. And then this third layer of purity that we see in ancient Judaism was the notion of physical wholeness. You were pure or impure based on the, the physical wholeness of your body. So eunuchs, the chronically ill, lepers, they were automatically seen as impure simply based on physical deformity. And then, you know, it just keeps building and building from there. A fourth level of purity was tied to wealth. So to be rich didn't necessarily mean you were pure, but to be poor certainly meant that you were at greater risk to being impure because you couldn't afford all the requirements uh, made up to observe, you know, all these temple laws. And then ultimately, purity is tied directly to sexuality, which is in some ways for us really the core issue of, of purity. And, you know, we read a lot about these purity laws in the context of the Old Testament, and we just need to remember that these are ancient tribal people, and so these laws were given to them for their own good, to help them flourish, to help them be healthy. So today, nobody really has to tell us, you know, that we can't have sex with our stepmother or our sister or aunt. It's just kind of common knowledge that we've inherited. But for uh, the ancient Israelites, these laws were given to them in order to help protect them. So I think what we see is purity culture is a lot larger than we want to give it credit for. It's a lot bigger than simply just sexuality, but it's all been ingrained in society to help set people apart to determine who's in and who's out. And especially in a religious context, one's degree of purity or impurity is tied to outward behavior. And we've inherited a lot of that in modern Christianity. Definitely. But I do think it's important to highlight the fact that living by a different standard is not bad. Like you said, that idea of be holy as I am holy is something that God commanded. But I do think, as you've started pointing out, that this idea of holiness has been completely distorted and maybe even co-opted and replaced with the idea of purity. One book that does a really good job of going into all the purity rituals and laws for the ancient Israelites is Jesus for President by Shane Claiborne and Chris Haw. I will link to that in the show notes if you want to get into that even more. But the ultimate purpose of these laws was to teach the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, to be devoted to radical love and kindness and compassion so that these outside cultures would look in and say, whoa, that's different. Nobody is that kind or nobody treats foreigners like that. It was all about representing God's love to other people. But over the centuries, instead of about being like God or being about being God's representatives, purity morphed into how one can prove one's worthiness or how one can prove 
their superiority to others or or that they're deserving of God's love more than someone else. Or I think what we have today is a way to prove that our faith is stronger than someone else's. So instead of being about showing God's character to the world, it became a way to show God that one was worthy. And I think that's a very different focus. Absolutely. It's interesting to remember that in times of cultural or social upheaval, people tend to just naturally become preoccupied with purity and holiness. So let's not be surprised that modern purity culture sprang up as a direct result of changing sexual norms in society at large during the you know 80s and 90s. It came about when the pill had become ubiquitous, when no-fault divorce is legalized, MTV's on the air 24-7. And at least at the time, I mean, I can remember staying up late on Friday nights to catch a glimpse of Cinemax or Skinemax. I hope my parents aren't listening. But, you know, softcore pornography was being introduced into homes via cable TV. You know, the women's movement had uh, galvanized in the 60s and 70s really empowering women to to own their sexuality more. And so I think purity culture is a reaction against the sexual revolution in many ways. But let's just kind of qualify uh, and, and pause for a second and really clarify what we mean by the phrase purity culture, because it does not refer to a specific sexual ethic, as you mentioned. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago when you posted that on Facebook, I read your post and I started to read all the reactions to it, all the pain, but also all the ways in which people misunderstood what you were critiquing. They were confusing even what you what you meant by the term purity culture. And, and I think even a few people even questioned, you know, whether you were in attacking purity culture, you were promoting sort of sexual debauchery or sexual licentiousness which really shows just how linked this whole notion of purity culture is to the idea of of sexual ethics in the first place. You know, in so many minds, to attack one is to assume that you are attacking the other, but but of course, they're, they're not the same. So when we talk about purity culture, what we're referring to is the ideas, the execution, uh, the, the series of events and curriculum and books and speaking engagements and personalities and even rules that showed up mm. in just about every evangelical summer camp or youth retreat or Bible study in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we just need to be honest that purity culture was invented by Christians in the church, and it was especially ardent in white evangelical church to, to enforce a specific sexual ethic. So it manifested itself in things like purity pledges, purity balls, purity rings, it told us kids at that time that our status as a virgin was the most important thing about us and that once we lost our virginity, we could never get it back. Organizations like the Silver Ring thing, which I think is now called Unaltered, yeah. True Love Waits, they all sprang up as a result of this desire for sexual purity. You know, they toured the country. They received state and federal funding to spread a message of abstinence and kind of, quote, saving yourself until marriage. And if you've ever heard about, or maybe you even participated, some of our listeners may have even participated in something called the Great Stakeout. Thankfully, I did not. I, I missed out on this one. <laughs> but I was too young. Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I was too old. I don't know. But it was really when a, <laughs> a bunch of young people signed uh, virginity pledges 
And then they staked them in the ground in, you know, civil disobedience in Washington, D.C., as a part of a True Love Waits rally. And it's kind of disturbing because these aren't just, you know, isolated events. This is an entire movement and in some ways an entire industry of making millions of dollars off of purity concepts and the purity system. You know, all the bling and the merch and the swag that was sold in selling this concept is enough probably to turn our stomachs. And what happens then to that kid, to you, to me at, you know, 12, pre-puberty, when we pledge to be sexually pure, when we pledge not to masturbate or to make out or, you know, to act out on any of our sexual urges, what, what happens then when you do? Well, the, the vicious cycle starts to set in. Suddenly, mm. you know, shame uh, is, leads to extreme sexual repression, and you begin to be disassociated from your body and from yourself. You begin to think that your sexual feelings are evil and ugly and dirty. And for me, I have this vivid memory uh, as, as an adolescent of just pleading with God to take away my sexual instincts and desires. You know, I thought every mm. time I masturbated, I was one step closer to burning in hell for eternity. It was, tra I mean, it was, it was incredibly traumatizing. So I would do probably what every other kid did. I, I would pray and I would make a new commitment. Now, I'm not ever going to do that again. And three days later, boom, it would happen again. So my entire life was focused on just this one aspect of myself. And I think even worse, it began to be tied into this notion of earning, earning God's love. And whenever I messed up, I assumed that God was angry with me, which, you know, as a 13-year-old, then I was messing up all the time. And so God was perpetually angry at me. Which is just insane to me because most of us went to these purity balls or got our purity rings or signed these pledges or whatever it was when we were almost too young to really have started having those hormones and those urges. So we make these pledges like, yeah, girls have cooties. I don't really care, whatever. I don't know what you're talking about. Then all of a sudden the hormones kick in and you're like, whoa, what? Right. What did I just do? <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's really heartbreaking because it's like you're asking these super young kids to make a commitment on something they don't even really fully understand because God forbid we actually teach them what's happening to their bodies. And then when those feelings come up, they feel like something is wrong and broken with them, which is not okay. I mean, we shouldn't feel like God hates us because our bodies are working the way he designed them to. You mentioned um, that True Love Waits rally, and it turns out, I learned this from watching the I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye documentary. It turns out that that rally is what inspired Joshua Harris at the ripe old age of 21 to write his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He attended that rally and just felt like God was showing him how the world's way of having romantic relationships was just not working. And again, this was right around, well, it was kind of far away from the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, but it was right on the heels of the HIV and AIDS crisis of the 80s. So he's seeing like people are becoming broken because of this sexual licentiousness that the world is teaching. So what do we do? Well, what he did in his book was say that dating is flawed. Dating is the problem. So if if someone wants to do things God's way, they and and stay pure, of course, they should court their significant other. 
Granted, courtship actually never really had a solid definition, so there were tons of different ways of doing it. But it centered around the idea of never, ever being alone with someone of the opposite gender, involving your parents heavily. Often they would go on dates with you so that you weren't alone. That's just gross. I, I know. Creepy, right? Yeah. Uh, never, never kissing and sometimes not even holding hands until you were standing at the altar. And what's crazy is this 21-year-old wrote it. Christian adults and organizations ate it up. Oh, dude, they did. I mean— I hope our listeners won't judge me, uh, but at the time when this came out, I was actually working at Focus on the Family, and so it was pimped and promoted through airways and books and everything, and 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 parents all over America forced their kids to read this. And, and Joshua Harris, as you said, at the ripe old age of 21, suddenly becomes this Christian relationship expert, this this sex expert, and I mean, who knows what anything about the relationships at 21 in the first place. So Not Christian 21-year-olds. No, right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's easy to bag on him, and, and we're not doing that. In some ways, it, it's, it's on us. How foolish were we to trust him? Um, how foolish were we to assume, once again, within evangelicalism, that we're going to reduce this incredibly complex conversation into something simple? Um, and, and we do it over and over again, whether it be about purity or sexuality or, or politics. We want an easy bake oven religion. Mm. We don't want to consider that issues around sex are complex. We want easy answers. And so we just want the recipe that as long as we follow it, then out pops the desired outcome. And that's exactly what purity culture promised. It, it promised way too simple solutions to human sexuality. And in the process, it made promises that it couldn't keep and, frankly, that we couldn't keep. So it's just problematic from the very get-go. And what's most important here, I think, is despite Harris's good intentions, he created an entire whole new legalism for dating, for sex, for sexual thoughts, for feelings, and, and even for marriage. And even if he was trying to help people honor God, which I think he was— um, and, and help them in their ro romantic relationships. Ultimately, what this entire movement did was take the focus off of God and put it firmly onto sex. And I think that's really important because purity culture actually made all of us think more about sex than we probably would have without it. Uh, we obsessed over it. We idolized virginity as the highest expression of Christianity. And so in creating all these new rules about sex, people had to think about that one thing that we weren't supposed <laughs> to think about, which is sex. You know, is this sex? Was that sex? What counts as sex? Is oral sex sex? So, you know, all of the is, is thinking these things by myself sex. And for millions of young people raised under this ideal, whether we realize it or not, the question really became, at what point will God stop loving me based on my sexual desires mm. or my sexual, sexual actions? Mm. And I think a consequence of that, whether it was intended or not, is that one's sexual status then became the most important thing about the person. It, it tied one's virginity to identity, almost like a badge of honor where we, you know, we wore it around with our purity ring, determining who was good and who was bad, who was in and who was out, who was worth marrying, and who, frankly, was damaged goods. One person told us that when he found out his fiance wasn't a virgin, he really had a moment of shock and, and even dismay. And he said, you know, I don't I didn't know if I should even carry on marrying her. 
Um, although he said really deep down it didn't matter, uh, but we had just elevated the conversation around virginity to a point that he now saw her from a different lens. He now saw mm. her from a broken lens. And so it isn't whether or not a person actually loves God or seeks to live out God's love in the world. Purity culture reduced Christianity to purely being something about sexual purity. And sexual purity became the barometer or the litmus test for, you know, true faith. And virginity became idolized and something really to pursue instead of pursuing God. So most of us just grew up thinking that in many ways the highest aim in Christianity was sexual purity to save ourselves from marriage. And it creates an incredibly distorted understanding of the gospel. It really reduces it. And even today, we see an inordinate amount of conversations and energy devoted to sexuality at the expense, frankly, of having other conversations. I mean, think about what the church today would look like if, as teenagers, we were discipled in conversations about justice or poverty or violence or race. But no, no, no. There was not room for any of those conversations because the only thing anyone ever talked about was sex and purity. Oh, so true. I don't I don't remember really talking about anything except for like scripture and then purity. That's all I ever heard. And that I mean that's what our Bible studies were about. It was everything. One thing I do want to say though is that I believe that most of the people who taught us purity culture had great intentions. So your parents, my parents, listeners' parents, or the youth pastors and the youth volunteers or the teachers at Christian schools, even the administrators of these Christian schools, I think that they all had good intentions. They really, truly wanted to see young people flourish and and ultimately have good sex eventually. And I think that they wanted what was best for us. I think even some of them we're like, hey, we see all these other kids contracting STIs and having teen pregnancies. Uh, we just don't want that for our kids. We want our kids to to actually flourish and to like find fulfillment in God. So I'm I'm happy, and I think that it, like I really truly believe there were people who had good intentions, but they followed the best wisdom available to them at the time. And that was that they should promote these values of purity culture and abstinence only and don't talk about sex, don't teach kids about what's happening to their bodies. So they heard that, they committed to it 100% and dove in. However, this goes back to what you were mentioning earlier about purity culture being a reaction to cultural upheaval. In my research, I uncovered a much longer history of purity movements within the U.S. that were way bigger than just a parent wanting to teach their kid or a youth volunteer leading a Bible study. These movements were taking place on the national level and within politics and, and on the national stage. And there were tons of groups that were involved in this, and it morphed over the years. I mean, it started mid-1800s, and so it changed a ton. What what people were promoting in the mid-1800s was very different from what they were promoting in the 1920s, let's say. But the most recent one, the most recent purity movement, the one that we now have today, this purity culture, really began post-World War II and 
grew in this rising fear of the Soviet Union coming to power and then ultimately possible nuclear war. And what happened was they said that the reason why America could die or end or be conquered by something as scary as the Soviet Union was because individuals weren't pious enough. They had abandoned not only the nuclear family, but they had abandoned morality. So if we just doubled down on our morality and especially went after the youth so that they would start their moral, their moral lives much younger and then live that life out forever, then we would not have these threats like there are of the Soviet Union or the Cuban Missile Crisis or, or whatever has transpired since then. But it tied personal piety and the strength of the nuclear family to national security, saying that if America abandoned its dedication not only to morality but to the purveyors of morality, which was Christians, then we would just succumb to moral degradation and those dirty communists would triumph. What's crazy is, like, part of this was, if you've ever heard of Youth for Christ or Billy Graham, they played huge roles in propagating these ideas back then. And so it goes even deeper than what you were saying, Gary Allen. And it's it's honestly so mind-blowing that I'm struggling to even wrap my head around it at this point. But if anybody wants to read more about it, I highly recommend the book Virgin Nation, Sexual Purity and American Adolescence by Sarah Mosliner, I think is how you say it. And I'll link to it in the show notes. But I think why it shook me so much, why it's so mind-blowing is... I realized that there were much larger forces at work that shaped our national discourse and then that used teenagers' bodies and their commitment to purity as a way to achieve their political goals. I mean, the, the, like my parents, they had good intentions, but the people behind the movement who were discipling my parents, they had ulterior motives and they were wholly unconcerned with how that movement might impact my entire generation for years and decades to come. They simply just use the rhetoric to keep America the top military power and to keep Christianity as the reason why America was so strong. And it's gone on for decades. So later on, Christian organizations like Focus on the Family jumped on board. You mentioned Silver Ring thing. They had a video in the 90s that very explicitly tied teenagers' commitment to purity to national well-being. I just can't help but wonder if if everybody had known this history and had known these larger forces at work, if we would have been so quick to adopt all this. And, and, I, th and I also wonder if we had known, honestly, the racist foundations of these ideas because it was so closely tied to middle-class white ideals as being moral and good and everything else being bad. I really wonder if we would have been so quick to adopt all this. I mean, all of this really goes back to our original point about purity which is that it's part of this unholy trinity, and that it's not actually about following God, but about gaining and wielding power and about keeping Christians at the top of the hierarchy. Yeah, in a strange way, it's make Americans virgins again. You know, that, that our, virginity, <laughs> our virginity is tied to national security. And there's this weird connection between the pursuit of purity and the fear of national decline. It's almost Darwinian. And the thought that a pure nation is a strong nation and that public morality rests in and results in national security. So in order to exert dominance in the world, we must protect our youth from sexual immorality. 
it's it's ironic then that purity culture is a byproduct of social Darwinianism. It's almost a form of social engineering whereby you sort out, you know, the population through this sort of sexual survival of the fittest that then promises that if you follow all these rules, we're going to result in a in a strong nation. And, and Americans, of course, are not uh, the only ones who, who have dealt with this. Adolf Hitler in Germany took this concept to an extreme by purifying the German nation of of all outsiders, of all uh, impropriety. He he created uh, strict sexual purity laws, really to determine from a national perspective who you could and who you couldn't have sex with. The Nuremberg race laws prohibited German citizens from sexual relations with Jews. And then they even went so far as to prohibit intercourse between two people who could apparently produce a racially suspect offspring. So to a lesser extent, I think we can see similar motivations by the religious right you know, you briefly mentioned the connection between purity culture and race, and especially how it was middle-class white ideals that were seen as virtuous and good. And although we don't have time to dive into that more on this episode, I think it's something to research on your own as how purity culture is directly related to to sex. You know, consider how horrible it was to have sex outside of marriage in the 80s and 90s, then double that and think about how the unpardonable blasphemy then to have had sex with someone of color. You you can just see how these come together pretty quickly in kind of a gross, gross, toxic soup. And also of note, Mel, uh, you know, you link this conversation to power uh, and how purity culture really benefits men and how purity culture supports patriarchy. And I think that's really true because boys were promised that in a modest, traditional, virgin-focused culture, we were still in charge. We got to make all the decisions. We did the marital choosing based on if a girl was worth it or not, or if she was, you know, pure or not. We then were in charge of our homes. We were then in charge of our future wives' bodies. You know, we get to tell them when and how to have sex. They are simply the recipients of our aggression. And so in this system, women are seen just as submissive. They are the receivers of sexual advances, and and in many ways, they don't have sexual agency themselves. And the promise for girls is only that if they could obtain to or maintain their purity, then maybe a boy would pick you. It's just so patriarchal. It's It's a patriarchal view of marriage, of relationships, of sexuality. So all three of these Ps that we've talked about in our introductory episode really come together uh, to form purity culture. And of course, these these rules are driven by the desire for power, to produce a strong nation, and for moral superiority. And the sole beneficiaries of purity culture are men who are rewarded with the virginal body of a woman who is ironically given to them by another man, their dad. And, and so all of this really supports a, a culture of patriarchy and power that women are subjected to. Yeah, and we had so many men reach out to us on social media to tell us how they were harmed by purity culture, and I don't want to downplay their experiences at all. It's not a competition between men and women or who was harmed worse by any means. I think if anyone was harmed by it, that matters. But I do think that it seems like there is an imbalance there because 
from most of my friends when they would like separate us out by gender and have us go have the guys purity talk and the women's purity talk the guys would say don't look at pornography try really hard not to masturbate but if you do try really hard not to think about someone else while you're doing it so that you're not lusting if that's possible good grief uh, that's crazy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then try really hard not to have sex before marriage but if you do oops you know like oh well and it just doesn't seem like those messages they received were quite as intrinsically tied to their identity like the ones i got were i mean it was very much like to quote mean girls for those of you who know if you have sex you will get pregnant and you will die or if you get sex, you will get pregnant and no one will ever want you ever again because you're tainted and you're broken and you're no longer worthy. I mean, I just don't see the men getting that message. I, I did see a lot of kind of um, permissiveness of like, well, try really hard, but if it doesn't work out, okay. Um, whereas with us girls, the consequences were like life and death almost or heaven and hell. But no matter what messages anybody received, it all comes back to earning our purity or our approval from God. And if the Israelites showed us anything, it's that none of us can earn our approval from God. Uh, none of us can live up to his standard of perfection. And, and just like the ancient Israelites who thought purity could be earned through their outward actions, we've now, 2,000 years later, fallen for the same temptation by thinking that purity can be earned through our sexual behavior. And what I think is even worse than what the Israelites had is that today we assume that you cannot get your purity back once it's been lost. The Israelites had different rituals they could go through to become pure again, at least for most of them. Like you said, there were some who were born with physical deformities and they could never change that. But now it's very much just like once you lose your purity, that's it, you're done. But I want to bring this back to something that you touched on a little bit in the last episode so that you can expound on it now, which is how Jesus responded to purity and the people who enforced it during his time. Well, he seems to have despised it. Uh, he seems to have really uh, sub subverted and rejected purity culture at, at every turn, at least that underlying premise that you mentioned that in order to get to God, you had to perform all these outward physical gymnastics uh, in order to prove your worth. So I think in every way, Jesus turns purity culture on his head, especially in the first century, and he offers an alternative. He replaces purity culture with something else, a, a, a view of humanity, even a view of God that is based not on purity, but is rather founded in compassion. At the very beginning of the episode, we talked about the pursuit of, of purity and it being linked to holiness, you know, that, that command, be holy as God is holy. I mean, that is scriptural. We, we can't deny that. And yet, here's what happens. Jesus comes onto the scene and he makes a bold substitution for holiness. He replaces holiness with compassion. In Luke, Luke 6, he says, be compassionate as God is compassionate. And he radically changes the conversation around purity. And, this, and, and so we can't assume that this close parallel didn't mean something. He is deliberately replacing the core value of purity with the core value of compassion. So I think in Jesus's mind, compassion, not purity, 
is the preeminent quality of God and should therefore be the preeminent quality that, that we as his disciples should pursue. I, I'm not saying that we don't pursue holiness. What I am saying is that compassion trumps purity or holiness at, at every turn. Or maybe compassion is how we pursue that holiness. Yeah, maybe exactly. Maybe that is the defining characteristic of yeah, holiness. Yeah, exactly. Maybe compassion is the highest expression of holiness. Some, you know, even in Mark's gospel, we hear him say, there's nothing outside of a person that by going in can defile them. It's the things that come out that are what defile. And, you know, he even makes a, a similar point later when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. So I think for Jesus, true purity seems to be linked to a matter of the heart and not necessarily to external actions. And maybe just one more example of just how Jesus subverted purity culture in the well-known parable that we refer to today as the Good Samaritan, Jesus is truly critiquing an entire way of life that's ordered around purity. We've domesticated this story into, oh, be nice to people when they're suffering, and obviously it has something to do with that. But when you start to look at it from its cultural context, you begin to see how purity is woven into the story at every turn. I mean, mm. the priest and the Levite, based on their purity, cannot go out of their way uh, to help the man who is presumed dead. Uh, purity laws prohibited them from touching anyone who was dead. And so to keep themselves pure, they did not respond with compassion. On the flip side, it's a Samaritan, someone who is literally on the outer fringes of the purity system, someone who is considered impure themselves, who comes to the aid of the man who is who is struggling. So he's really subverting this by putting the hero of the story as someone who is impure, um, and he's advocating for another way of life, which is based around compassion. I think the next time you pick up the Gospels, just notice how many times Jesus is getting in trouble for not obeying the law, for not obeying the purity standards of his day, I mean, when we think about it, he, Jesus himself, the God-made flesh, is considered impure by these standards, by this system. That, that should tell us everything we need to know about man-made purity cultures, that God is deemed impure through them. You know, Jesus, he, he, he eats and drinks with tax collectors and prostitutes. He touches lepers. He even touches a woman who's bleeding, which should have made him impure. So he's really in, in just every shape and fashion rejecting purity culture, and he replaces it with this whole notion of, look, I don't want to burden you. I'm not here to burden you with another set of rules. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So this radical inclusivity where he rejects purity culture, we see it actually continue to play out in the, in the early church, and scholars tell us that one of the most striking characteristics of the first and second century of the church was its inclusivity, that the poor, the, mm. the maimed, the outsiders, prostitutes, everyone who was considered impure by the culture at large were accepted. You know, think about the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Philip, and in, in similar fashion, we miss the cultural context. This story is, has everything to do with purity and boundaries. Eunuchs were sexually defective. They were physically impure. 
And so they were perceived to be at the very bottom of society and th at the bottom of this purity system. They were excluded from full participation in religious life, which makes the eunuch's question to Philip so astounding. He asked him, what is preventing me from being baptized? And I think his question really is, am I going to be excluded based on my impurity? And of course, mm. of course, he's not. He is included. You know, think of the words of Paul later on where he's talking about and really negating this whole world of, of purity and binary distinctions. He says, in Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And maybe in modern context, we would, we would read, there is neither virgin or defiled. So I, I think for Jesus, for the early church, where purity sought to divide and exclude, compassion unites and includes. And, and we are to be compassionate because God is compassionate. And that really should drive all of our conversations about sex and purity. Preach. Honestly, John says in John 13, by this they will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That compassion or that love is what sets God's people apart and marks them as different from the surrounding cultures, not purity. And, and remember, this was the original goal of all the laws that the ancient Hebrews were to live by. It was to keep them from exploiting the land, to keep them from exploiting their fellow humans, to resist their greedy tendencies and leave some behind for someone who didn't have anything. I mean, it was all about showing love and compassion that was radical for their time. And it was never about earning God's favor. It was about displaying God's love to the world. So I think that's a good question to ask of purity culture now is, has it done that? Has it displayed this radical compassion and love to the surrounding cultures, to those who don't believe in God? Has it drawn them in saying, what you have is different, I want that? Or has it done the exact opposite, which is divide and exclude, like you said, Gary Allen? Despite all this history that we've looked at, I do think it's important to simply consider this most recent purity movement on its own as well, because even though it had all these influences and political ties and it, the history goes so far back, it also took on its own life for teenagers. We didn't know any of that history when we were taught all this. My parents didn't know that history. My church probably didn't know that history. We only knew what we were taught, which was that we needed to be pure, and this was how to do it. But we've been talking for a long time now. So in the next episode, the second part of this, we will take some time to look at how the messages propagated by our modern purity movement impacted teens, as well as hear some of those stories that we received and I'll take some time to get into my own personal story because it takes a lot longer than just a minute or two. So that's it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, for show notes and references, please head to holyheretics.org. We would love to hear your story with purity culture still, even though we're already, this episode is already out there. We still want to know what your experience was, good, bad, or something else entirely. Shoot us a message. We're on Twitter and Facebook as at Holy Heretics. And we're on Instagram as at Holy Heretics Podcast. 
Or if you prefer, shoot us an email at podcast at sophiasociety.org. That's podcast at S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. God willing, the second part of this episode will come out soon, but we are a nonprofit organization, so the Sophia Society relies on donations from listeners like you to continue producing content. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on, we'd love it if you'd consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find us on there at patreon.com slash holyheretics. Thanks. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith in Foxholes, and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge.